You're listening to Captured in Celluloid. I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And on this episode, we're going to do something that we promised we would do a long time ago, and we also promised that when the time came to do this, there was only one person we could have on to help us navigate through this particular movie. Today, we are going to visit, revisit now in all of our cases, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and I'm delighted to say joining us for that is returning guest and Andrew's brother, Jordan Snyder. Hello, Jordan. Welcome back. I'm glad to be back, and it's for a good reason, is it not? A very good reason. I, I mean, I, I think we'll we'll jump almost straight into this, because the last time you were on, when we, we talked with the, the films of Jacques Demy, I believe, Andrew, you still hadn't seen this, and we were making fun of you for not having seen it yet? I think that is correct. That is where we were at that time. So... We were both very much encouraging you, urging you that you needed to get that done. You eventually did get that yeah, done. How much encouraging does it take? <laughs> well, in my defense, the lockdown of AMC theaters started the day that I was originally going to see it in in a theater, or at least I can say that, and no one can prove otherwise. Uh, and then it came to Hulu, and all the problems were solved. So sometimes I just take a, need a little kick in the ass to get going. Well, I know that's true because I remember you telling me, oh, I'm going to go see it then. I was like, you sure you're going to a theater? Yeah, that's going to happen. But I would like to point out that it wasn't like that was opening weekend for this movie. You still took your time. Yeah, how many days before uh, that that day did you have that you could have seen it? Uh, I think a good couple of weeks. That's a good point. That's all fair points. Anyway, you've seen it now. That's the main thing. But to you, Jordan, because we even took a brief moment to kind of to mention it last time out. What is it about this film that I guess has really affected you, stood out, struck you, made it a film that you're continuing to watch, continuing to think about? Even, I don't know, when you first saw it, was it September, October time last year? So we're now beyond six months on and it's it's a movie that we're, we're still going to have a conversation about. Yeah, it, it honestly feels like even longer ago that I saw it. It feels like a, a film that I've known my whole life now that I've seen it. Um, and I think the thing about it is that it's just such a, a pure romance movie that y- you don't get anymore and that it doesn't have all the, the tropes of a typical romance film. And there's like the, the meet-cute moment. It's <laughs> In this movie, it's like a, a meet suicide watch uh situation but i just love how pure it is and i'm a sucker for also tragic romance stories so this things combined just made it really compelling for me and andrew now that you have seen it i mean this is your first chance to deliver your verdict so i won't prompt you even what are your thoughts on portrait of a lady on fire I think it's it's absolutely stunning in every way. So it makes it even worse that it took me so long to see it. I mean, it it's coming at you from a lot of different angles. It's a pretty visually stunning film in kind of big ways, but also subtle ways. It's got powerful performances um, from the two lead actresses um, that I'm sure we'll get into later. And then I think, Adam, a theme with the movies that I'm typically drawn to um, in, in fact, uh, a, a Twitter meme that I just <laughs> responded to 
because of Jordan earlier in the day, one of the movies that I listed as a perfect movie was Before Sunset. And the reason that I adore that movie and think it's exceptional is because it's got an absolutely knock you out of the park screenplay and a uh, great ending. And I think the, the thing that really struck me the second time watching this and even the first time is is how great the screenplay is in this film. I mean, it it won uh, best screenplay at Con, Cans Cons, whatever it's pronounced. At, oh, uh, you you were there the first time, and uh... can he do it? <laughs> we we know how bad I am with French. That's that's my big my big thing. And uh, one thing that I, I keep thinking about as I as I watch these subtitled foreign films or international films. So this is in and French and subtitled like Parasite was in Korean and subtitles. I, I wonder if it almost helps bring home how great the writing is when you're able to, to read it along with seeing the actress perform it. So that's really what it is. And that it's a fully formed movie that's got visual amazement. It's got great performances. And then it's got a script that is so quotable, heartbreaking and funny all at the same time. Yeah, I think you've both done a really nice job of kind of summing up and giving an overview of um, not so much what the movie's about, but what the movie does and does so effectively. Uh, it is a love story set in France, in a French island, I can't remember exactly where, um, in the late 18th century with the, I guess, core premise being painter a portrait artist comes to this island to paint a commissioned picture of a young lady who lives there who is going to be married to a milanese gentleman and this is basically the last step in that process this is almost like sending off the portrait for approval and it's been a troubled journey uh, to get a portrait done painters have had difficulty in the past so it starts out as kind of a something of a covert mission <laughs> yeah <laughs> to, to really use terminology that doesn't fit with this movie in any way but it is also true and um, to get this this painting completed until something different happens entirely and a real relationship a real connection is established to kind of jump into this there's a few things i want to touch on first is as we normally would with with a movie when we kind of break down this details to set the scene with who are the key figures involved so first of all it's directed written and directed by celine siama a french filmmaker this is her fourth feature film i don't know i think you haven't seen any of her previous films jordan where are you at with celine siama's other works i've uh, watched water lilies but that's it okay so uh, Water Lilies is her debut feature. It was followed by Tomboy and more recently Girlhood, um, which was the movie that predated Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Girlhood was kind of the film that really broke her through in a international, making real buzz a festival sense, and the film that would have set up Portrait of a Lady on Fire in terms of getting something made with that kind of expanded scope, which is certainly something that, that we see in this movie. Siam is a really interesting filmmaker whose movies are generally, and up until this point, have been very much um, focused on and, I guess, committed to getting across a feminist perspective of film, uh, working from the perspective of, I guess, defying the traditional male gaze way that movies are, are so often made. And focusing instead on stories that are about gender, that are about gender roles and gender identity. 
and largely coming-of-age films. In fact, every movie she's directed so far, to one degree or another, is a coming-of-age film, I would say. This being the closest she's getting to moving out of that particular genre. And I, I've seen all of her movies. I finished off the, the gaps that I had today, which were Water Lilies and Tomboy. And it's kind of really striking her style and how her style has progressed. And I guess how that ends up manifesting itself in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Because to me, one of the things when I first saw this movie, I was... Aside from all of the, the details of the story itself, which we'll get into, I was really, really struck by the look of it. Just kind of both interiors and exteriors, the, the way they were lit was really, really different. And um, there's a certain, even from the first couple of scenes when Nomi Roland's character arrives in the island and it's, we kind of have this almost sunset with a purplish sky and there's a really striking look and feel. And that continues throughout the movie. We've got a pretty static camera. And you see someone who every decision, every shot is really, really meticulously composed. And straight away, that will get my attention. But I think as we kind of get into later, she works in a way that the look and the feel of our movie is completely integrated to what the the text itself has to say. So I think a filmmaker who is now, it would be, uh, be wrong to say, is an up-and-coming filmmaker because this was a true breakthrough and a about as big a sense as possible i mean the only thing that could have given an extra jolt to momentum this movie would have been if it had factored into the oscar picture and because of francis strange decisions when it came to putting forward their film this year a lot of politics involves on that well, one my biggest didn't. disappointment of the entire oscar season yeah it's it's a very very strange one like i i think Celine Siama has spoken about and Adele Hanel has and I, I think the events at the Cesars which are France's own Academy Awards as such since have kind of highlighted this film hasn't been received in the same way in France as it has been elsewhere in the world um, it, it's it's been seen as this kind of a love story that I think the way she described it was that was lacking in flesh is how it's been received in France which is just mind-blowing to me because i think there's something so intimate something so romantic about the way this movie is told that i i don't know how anyone could view it that way but that seems to have been what the reception was in france was that flesh in a blue is the warmest color sense or flesh in terms of like meat on the bones with the romance from the plot standpoint because those are two different things. I think I don't know if anyone was necessarily saying, you know, let's go full, let's go full Kachichi, let's go blue swarms color with this. Okay, I... but I I do think that is that is essentially getting in the direction of what people are saying. It was it was thought of as a movie that wasn't very sexy, which is what Celine Siana has herself described as. I don't know. I am not a affluent french speaker so i haven't read all of the the french reviews but that seems to be at least what the team involved in the making of the film have put forward as the reception to the movie in france it is interesting that they went largely ignored at the cesar awards as well like you said i mean uh claire mathen won for best cinematography but other than that uh celine siama adele hanel noemi merlant were all shut out and then shut out for other awards like costume design and production design as well, which is really, yeah, really strange and just highlights your further point about some kind of disconnect in France. But uh, 
I mean, well, yeah, look, P- Polanski's movie won Best Picture, and Adele Hanel caused something of a stir by walking out and. I think rightfully causing something of a scene in that moment. But I think that speaks to, you know, the kind of conversations that focus on what's the makeup of voters in the Academy and, you know, what are the demographics? I would take a guess that that is a much greater problem in France than it is even in terms of the Academy. And if they'd been nominated at the Oscars, you could have gotten her energy there too. It would have been perfect yeah and i th- th- i think the thing that's maybe most interesting with that if we were to look at it through that that kind of prism obviously with parasite winning even in a year where there were some other really good not in the english language what's the what if they changed the name of best international film yeah. right even though there were some other really good movies i think we know parasite considering what happened would have won but i wonder if just the momentum of having it in the international film race could have brought some more attention to the acting and maybe like not the most exciting or interesting categories and um, best actress or even best supporting actress three at last year's Oscars. And I think really on merit, there's no doubt that both of these performances would have been nominated. And for me, as you were talking about the film visually, I think, now I haven't seen this movie, but I I know that I know the gimmick, uh, and I love the person that that did it. But something like 1917 winning for best cinematography is almost less impressive to me than what Mathen does here. There sometimes uh, there's something special about simplicity, and this is a a simple film that's done in an extraordinary way visually. I mean, I I love the the way that she plays with the firelight in the dimly lit rooms and it, it, it really makes you feel like you're in that setting as as uh Marianne is warming by the fire and I, I think she just did a special job with this movie and her her win at the Cesar Awards was was earned and I would have been interested to see what would happen if she would have been sacked up against uh, Roger Deakins and people like that. Claire Maldon might have had the best year of any cinematographer. She also shot Maddie Diop's Atlantics last year, which I'm not sure if either of you have seen, but an absolutely incredible movie in a visual sense. Just absolutely mesmerizing what she's done with the cinematography for that movie. So that was quite a year. I don't did either of you see Atlantics? I didn't, no. I did not either. It's been on my list. We're checking out. Yeah. It's on it's on F. Netflix, I think. I think it is it on Criterion as well. It's I think it's on Criterion, definitely. It, it's on Netflix here, but maybe not in the US because I know it is on Criterion too. Um, or you know what? It's on Netflix. The short, the original short that was adapted from is on Criterion Channel. Okay. Anyway, we've got sidetracked into the awards that could have been for Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Let's get back to the movie itself. I I think the the thing that we'll get into straight away having touched on Celine Siama and who she is and even having mentioned Claire Mathon as the cinematographer I think the next logical place to jump to is the two leads of this film would Bodhi agree first of all two leads I mean technically Nomi Merlan is probably the lead but I, I think they kind of they really share this movie right yeah uh, go ahead Jordan I was gonna say I absolutely agree um and I mean, I think we just get we get hung up on the whole awards aspect of of is, are they leading or supporting when really in this case 
if it was coming down to awards, I would be like, oh, well, I hope they split it so they have they can both win something. Or, um, but I think that it's clear that they're both pulling equal weight here. Yeah, and that's Nomi Merlon and Adele Hanel. Just I don't think it's Adele Hanel's name. Sorry, Andrew. To to borrow from a, a term that you and I do not like, uh, no one wins the movie, so to, so to speak. They're, they're playing off one another and the chemistry that they develop as they go from painter and subject to potential lovers to actual lovers, another term I hate, but whatever, I just said it, um, is really what makes the movie. And as Jordan said, I don't think one of them's outperforming the other. It's really what they're doing together um, that makes them work as co-leads. Yeah, there's, there's something about, I think, how they mesh together, the casting is just perfect like it takes an element of hindsight for that but the casting is perfect because what makes this film work what makes it home along what makes it a really really special movie is the way these two characters interact the way these two actresses interact often without words and with their with their faces with their eyes i haven't seen two performances in recent years that really come anywhere closest and just in terms of you know, performing what goes unsaid, that carries so much of what's really crucial to this movie, what's really crucial to understanding the situation these characters are in and also how they feel about each other. And I can't I can't think of many recent examples where it's just been quite as striking. I mean, there there is a, a movie that I think there are some similarities to and, and there's some similarities, I guess, thematically and visually. There's some kind of flourishes that are not too dissimilar, and that would be Moonlight. But I don't have a whole lot else that I can think of. Just straight visual performance. What what the actors are doing with their eyes, where it's quite as powerful as this. Because, I mean, over the course of this movie, I, I just personally found myself lost in both of their eyes. Yeah, and what is it about? Is it the shooting? I can't tell what it is that makes them so vibrant and pop out so much specifically in this movie. But I noticed it as well from my first watch. I, I, I do. When you say makes them pop out, do you mean their eyes generally or yeah, just them as performers? Their, their eyes specifically I, are just so vibrant on screen at, at so many points in the movie. Well, I, I think one of, one of the standout things to me for this movie is the idea of, you know the gaze and the idea of looking and these two characters looking at each other it's kind of played out pretty explicitly in the script some of the funniest lines of the movie are about that some of the best moments the the most well-constructed moments are about the fact that you know if if i'm painting you what you're looking back at me we're basically mirroring each other we're seeing the, the kind of mirrored image and you get these kind of they're not looking directly down the camera at all times but they're very close to it and there's something about that that i think is really interesting and really cinematic something i thought about when i first saw this and i think about it more and more every time i see it is rear window uh, a movie that the gaze of the movie in terms of the male gaze and the female gaze couldn't be any more different but hitchcock often talked about rear window as about as cinematic as you can make a movie because you're putting your character in a position where they're looking at something and as an audience you're looking at the screen you're getting to see their perspective and i, I think that's what they do really well here is that when uh, nomi merlan is looking at adele hanel 
we are also looking at her and not in a way where we're really taking the two I mean, it's it's edited in a really, really economical way. I mean, we've got long takes. They're really, really kind of well choreographed. We're not getting a lot of two shots. You know, there's not a lot of, okay, we're just absorbing the scene. They're both there in it. We're, we're getting to explore with each character and get a sense of their perspective and really kind of almost feel like we're intruding on their romance. I think that's part of the feel I have for it. I don't know, does that... Does that speak to you or to speak to anything you saw on it or maybe why we're so drawn in by their eyes and the way they look? I think part of it is at times it feels like they're looking directly back at us as the audience. I have a... Oh, go ahead if you've if you got something else. I was going to say, Andrew, you're an uh, expert on voyeurism. Go ahead. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, well, that lead-in makes this weird what I'm about to say. But we, all, we're, we're, we love movies. This is, <laughs> that's movies. You know, that is the thing. I mean, that is... That is your window. I'm I've dug you out of a hole there, Andrew. So I expect you know now, I expect a favor in return at some point. I'll say this is something that I find with male performers too. But I mean, it comes down to the fact that they're also both strikingly beautiful human beings, but in different ways. And they, I mean, part of being an actor and a movie star in particular is knowing how to use your physical features. And in this case, that's the expressiveness or lack thereof of their faces. I mean. And they're being shot by someone that recognizes those features as well. And and that's what makes it all come together to an extent. I mean, they, they kind of contrast each other well in, in the styles that they look. I mean, you've got a blonde, very big-featured, expressive actress, Anna Del Hanel, and then Naomi Merlant. It's a, a little more subtle where, and where she's always almost like smirking or inquisitive, mm. whereas Adele Hanel's got, in this role in particular, has almost like... A, a, a constant scowl but it's like yeah. not in a bad way at all and i think it's two actresses that, that really know how to act with their faces and a filmmaker that really knew how to shoot them and like you said it's like we're a fly on the wall intruding into their romance yeah i, I feel like naomi merlan always looks like she's about to break out into a smile or she certainly wants to and it's almost the fact that adele hanel looks the opposite that makes it all the more impactful when she actually does, when they start to share these moments of joy where you're really kind of brought into it in a different level. You're, you're right, there is a kind of really effective juxtaposition between how they look and how that influences their performance. Oh, yeah. Like, I think Adele Hanel, like you guys said, she has the scowl. She's always looking serious and sort of what you would expect a nun to look like, I guess. And she did just come from the convent and. It's, I guess her serious look is just sort of hiding a, a very intense dread for her future and grief for her sister's death. And then I guess anger also that her sister would put her in this position at all. And so, yeah, I agree that when you see those moments of joy come through later, that it just is all the more striking. Like when they're playing cards, for example, later in the movie. Yeah, that that's one of the great scenes for that, particularly because, I mean, that's one of the examples of Siama's style that I really like is, I think, 
I don't know what game they're playing. Is it is it like Snap? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe someone someone listening, if either of you will know exactly what they're it playing. It looks like a game that we've played that's colloquially referred to as Slapjack. I feel like that could be Snap, but that could be the incredibly southern name for Snap. <laughs> yeah, explain sure, sure explain Slapjack in, in France as well. <laughs> I'm, I, I was going to call it Slap Card, so I was much wronger than either of you. So explain that to me. What, what, how does that work? So you each have, I guess, an um, equal amount of cards uh, face down, and then you flip them over one by one. And like for, for my case, it would be a jack. And so whoever, fl- when you flip over a jack, the first person to like slap their hand down on it first right. then gets that card and all the cards underneath it. And so it's like right. whoever gets the most cards wins, I think. That that would be basically the equivalent of Snap. So I, you've got a much better name for it. It's much more colorful. I'll, <laughs> I'll give you that. But anyway, to get back to the point of that, I think a lot of directors in that sequence, we'd be getting shot reverse shot or we'd be seeing the hands and we'd see the cards where instead Siama just focuses purely on their faces. We get kind of medium close-ups of the three characters, uh, Mariana, Louise, and Sophie. And that makes the reactions all the more effective, all the more infectious as well. It's when you really get the joy spilling over and you get the laughter spilling out. I think even I'm fortunate enough to have seen it in the theater. You had the same experience, Jordan. You you didn't. It was your own fault, Andrew. <laughs> but they're the kind of moments that you can kind of feel that ripple through the audience as well. I think that's that's an example of something where she really knows what she's doing. I think something else that's kind of it's outside of the movie, but it's impossible to ignore with any of this. Like we're talking about how is this so effective? How do their eyes really have this kind of impact on us? Siama and Adele Hanel were in a relationship together for quite some time. It did end before shooting began on the movie, but you've got to feel like that informs it, right? She's, she's looked at Adele Hanel's face a lot more than most people have. So when all of a sudden it's about where are we going to put this camera? How are we going to, you know, accentuate our features? Or even some of the scenes we get, like one of my favorite exchanges is when Eloise and Marianne compare the the kind of different ticks and idiosyncrasies they notice of the other while they're, while they're watching each other, while one's painting and the other is sitting as the subject. Like, that's the kind of thing you only get with time you only get when you truly start to know someone and in this case we have a director and one of the two leading actresses who have that kind of familiarity that kind of shorthand that to me i think you know on the one hand we could leave it aside but on the other i think it's it's kind of very difficult to separate it from the movie because it has to have informed some of that it has to inform how the film looks how those performances maybe came about and it just likely brings an, an extra kind of energy to, to proceedings overall. I know. I I don't really know. I feel like I've been following their press junkets and everything that have been going on since the film's release uh, earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And they definitely have a closeness that, I don't know, I, I wouldn't expect it from most people who used to date for an right. extended period of time. So it's a very 
think of the intensity of making this movie yeah. when they'd already broken up at the start of it. Like that in its own right is kind of crazy. So I guess a, a, sign, a great sign of maturity uh, in Celine Siama for sure. I think it's very French as well. If yeah, we're being probably. <laughs> I think it's incredibly French. Andrew, any thoughts on that? <laughs> no, I mean, that's uh, that makes sense. I don't think I was armed with that. Uh, information the first time I saw it but was going into it and I mean to shoot someone so lovingly it would make sense that you're putting yourself back into a position that you have been in the past when you were in a relationship and even beyond that like Jordan said there's a closeness to them still so I mean you come out of that still like close friends and I don't know if she's almost like amused for Celine Siama that and that relationship and friendship would extend beyond the romantic relationship but she's definitely shot in, in a caring way in this movie. Um, so that's an that's an interesting thought with that as a backdrop. I'm glad you brought up Muse because you've just you've just set me up to hit this one out of the park, Andrew. Because really what Celine Siama has made very clear in interviews and discussing with this film is a big part of her reason for making this film. And the story behind this film is to debunk the notion of the Muse. Well, damn. <laughs> To, but to make it clear that there there isn't there isn't such thing as a muse, it's about collaboration, and it is about how you know those two people interact with each other and how how they kind of inspire each other and what the catalyst of that is. So I I do think that in particular, when taking that framing of it and their relationship, that certainly speaks to something and adds something to it. I mean, you're maybe not far off with describing it as a muse, but I think she would see that as a role that's kind of reciprocated uh, on both parts. I, I like that. So it's like in a Ethan Hawke, Julie Delpy, Richard Linklater sort of way, or a, a Jason Isbell, Dave Cobb sort of way where you work together so well. And it's, it's not necessarily like the, the artist muse relationship. Yeah. I like that comparison. I think that that's uh How do you fell for it at first though. Well, you know, we all say things. <laughs> Well, that is one like one of the things Siama has really kind of talked about, and particularly when when she was doing her press tour around the time of the U.S. release, is that this is a movie about equality, and this goes back, I guess, to the idea of the gays and how it's portrayed. I mean, there's no, this is an incredibly romantic film, and yet there's nothing kind of leering about it. Um, it's it's very much allowing us to feel very close to what's happening but also even when we're intruding there is there is an element of distance or there's an element of at least the camera is respecting both parties and we're getting a kind of an equal share of proceedings i i think there is one thing that i'll return to later that's maybe interesting on where the film does split from going okay everything is kind of 50 50 here but i i'm kind of I'm intrigued by that notion too, because we've already talked about, you know, how this is really kind of two leads. It would be hard to, to describe one as supporting. I've noted how in terms of shot setup and then editing, we're getting a lot of cutting from one to the other rather than necessarily breaking off where it's it's solely seeing one from the other's perspective. But I do think that leads to something that is a little bit different too. And maybe... Maybe that's something that even in a romance movie, and if we're we're gonna kind of transition into talking about maybe what works in terms of 
portraying love and intimacy on screen in this movie. So often if you get a love story, it may end up as being about a couple, it may end up as being about two people. But we'll often start with one character and we kind of go from their perspective and, and their way into the story. And there's an element of that here very briefly. But I, I think as it progresses, it's the fact that we get to we get to be both of them. We get to see from both their perspectives as an audience that really makes it all the more impactful. And it kind of it ties back to, for me, when I was watching today, a film I was thinking about in that regard is another movie we've talked about on this podcast, Andrew, and another kind of relatively modern romance, and that's Swankar Wise in the Mood for Love, which really does kind of split its narrative down the middle and spend its time with both the male and female character in that case to to give us both of their sides of their relationship. I think that is something that's probably key to telling a really good romantic story is to allowing the audience the same level of investment in both characters without creating any kind of divide or any kind of allegiance before anything happens. And that, that to me is something that I just think they've executed perfectly in this case. Yeah. And I think I haven't seen, did you say in, in the mood for love? Is that what you brought up? Right. I haven't seen that. But that's also one that I hear brought up um, in conversation about Portia of Lady on Fire and I'm curious if it's because of, like I mentioned, the, the elements of this romance film being different than others I've seen in recent memory where it's not about divorce or affairs or some kind of toxic love in, in some way, which is often really exhausting. Or how there's always in romance movies that are they're predictable conflict at, at the end of the second act, you know that they're going to have some sort of falling act and then separate and then come ultimately reconcile. And I just think this film just goes around all of those tropes and, and, and things that you're expecting from it. And that's what makes it so enjoyable. I think they're comp- uh, comparable from that sense. And then uh, Adam, I'll let you step in since you're much more familiar with that film as well. I was, I was going to just say, and then pass it to you because you've seen it more recently for the first time. So I'm, I'm interested in your read on that. Like, I think the things that you described as toxic and the things that, you know, often are good for this, you basically just described in the mood for love there. Like that's a very key part. It's not the driving factor, but it's a, it's a core element of the story. And I guess the setup of in the mood for love. But I, I think what boat movies do is they're in no real hurry to to get from point A to point B to point C in the relationship. Like you alluded to at the start, the lack of a traditional meet-cute here. Instead, we just get to observe the relationship between the two characters in a way that feels more organic, in a way where the progression feels more earned rather than kind of moving along at a pace that's you know movie-friendly. I think I think that for me is a a key element in kind of comparing those two movies. Anyway, I, I don't know what your thoughts that would be, Andrew. I agree. I was going to say that something Jordan talked about earlier was like the pureness in a, the relationship between the two characters, and I think in the mood mood for love has that aspect not with what's surrounding each of them, but in the way they interact with the other and what they find in one another. And I think that's also true for Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We'll come back to this uh, a little later, Adam, actually, because in my notes here, I had, uh, when I was thinking about the ending of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, it the second time watching it, it, it really made me call back to In the Mood for Love. I think there's some similarities there that I 
don't think uh, we should uh, get into now. But um, no, we'll we'll hold. We have I have in my notes here. I basically have what are like the three endings of this movie. Yes, all three endings, and they're amazing. And they come. It's not like one comes, you know, half an hour before the end. They keeps going. They come in pretty quick succession. But I think the movie ends three times, and they all work. Like work is underselling it. 100 fold it, it's pretty incredible but i have all three of them noted here so we'll hold off on kind of ending related spoilers for the moment i i will say if you're doing a captured on celluloid double feature for movies you haven't seen and in the mood for love and portrait of a lady on fire fit that description that would be a great great way to spend a quarantine afternoon that would it would be a very nice and charming way i i possibly do have a double feature recommendation later which would not make it would make it much more sinister so i'll hold off on that one but yours is definitely much nicer i think and much warmer there's a warmness to in the mood for love as well in terms of visually how it looks how it sounds that i think would certainly mesh pretty well with it other other than some of the things we've touched on what is it to both of you or either of you that you you find striking about how this particular relationship is portrayed what is it that you think makes it so effective or is there anything that we haven't touched on that really stood out to you either when you first watched it or on rewatches since so for me i think it's aside from what happens within the relationship and just how the script really hits that home i think it's because of the era we're in we know from the start that we're i mean we're not going to end with happiness and, and wedding bells and traditional tropes. Like we know it's doomed. I saw, I was reading an article earlier today and it was, it, the title was portrait of a lady on fire, fire, a feminist film, pre-feminism. And that's what's true because the entire time we know they're, that society is not going to allow them to, to be together essentially. I mean, just because of the time and, I mean, what you're supposed to do, like with your life, and a- another thing that I find interesting is just the the juxta- uh, juxtaposition between the the two characters. We've got Marianne, who's this I- independent, um, free spirit, can kind of control her own destiny, and then we've got Heloise, who's who's locked into a box and has her whole life decided for her. And I think the the freedom and the suppression between these two people falling in love because of how different their lives will play out after this is is really interesting as well the thing that i love most about it is that and i might have touched on this already but it isn't like a, a love at first sight between them the, the romance and and the desire i guess is the best word builds or, organically and gradually um it's evolving with each progressing interaction that they have uh, and Marion's observations being interpreted as stolen glances is just such a, a clever uh, way to uh, add conflict there. But there is a genuine desire building within her, even if it's initially just a job. And one thing that I was worried about is that I was worried going in that the secret of Marion being a painter was going to last the entire movie and that the reveal of that would be the climax. And I was so glad that we just got that out of the way and were able to just focus on their romance and their relationship for the entire film. Uh, I think that's definitely something a lesser movie does. 
you know. I feel like if there was an American remake of this movie at some point, that's the kind of thing that would be in play. You know, be no, we're, we can't kill the suspense, which I mean, I think for a large part, the suspense does get killed. If there was, if if the suspense was important, which it's it's a, not really, I, th- I think that is the moment where any of it gets killed, but this isn't a suspense movie. And I think part of why that's it, and after that, you're not really, I guess after that, you're not really worried about plot. You're just there with the characters, and you're wanting to see them interact and go on their journey. And I think that is tied to what you mentioned, Andrew, in terms of, I also think it's important that the characters are just as pragmatic as I think most of the audience would be while watching it. It, They don't have this sense of like, oh, everything's just going to be fine. We'll make this work. We'll, We'll run off together. I mean, there are a couple of moments of conflict where, really what they have and what the inevitability of what's going to happen between them are brought up and discussed. But uh, I think that's kind of critical too, is there's nothing in this movie that would just make you roll your eyes at the characters and think, Oh, they're really naive and they're just, they're completely lost in how they feel about each other. And they're now oblivious to the world around them. I think they're both just immensely intelligent and they're fully attuned to what their situation is. And how their feelings aren't necessarily going to overcome the times they live in. And just, I guess the way, uh, the way that Eloise's life is now mapped out for, you know, there's not a lot that could be done about that. So although there's something really deep about the relationship they build and something lasting, they're also never really blinded in the way that I, I think most movies like this, like if the, if this was a rom-com, like it, it would be manufacturing itself to be about, you know, okay, well, how can we just make this about us? And how can we like the absence of that and the very kind of clear intentions of the characters to just enjoy all, every moment they have together to, to maximize their time together. I think is also really, really crucial in setting the dynamic here too. It's it's something that's pretty unusual in f- film. And there's there's a nice kind of languid pacing to this movie while it also just flies by. I've seen it four times now, I think. Every time I watch it, I, like it's I think it's two hours on the dot, but I mean it it might as well be eighty minutes. It just absolutely flies by for me every time. And that's because I think the moments the moments where the pace comes down it's really when the emotions ramp up even if they're still somewhat unsaid or there's something under the surface it's where we as an audience become kind of lasered in on every gesture every word every movement between them and on the other side of it there's some real restraint on on Siama's part where the cutting is again really deliberate. The camera, one of the things I mean, trying to think in water lilies. Yeah, the the camera moves quite a bit in water lilies, and the the editing pace, the cutting pace, is much much more rapid compared to this. Uh, and that's generally the case for most of Siama's films. Like Girlhood is probably the one where the camera moves most, and the fact that she went from Girlhood to this is really kind of a clear departure in, in a formal sense. But the way 
the camera will park itself and it gives the moment really time to breathe, I think it's crucial to the effect it ultimately gets to have on the audience. I want to go back to something um, you said, if that's okay, about um, sure. them appreciating the, the time that they have together. So, I mean, this is a movie where you could go back to, I mean, five, six, ten different scenes and, and say, like, this is my favorite scene in the movie or this scene blows me away. I mean, the the first piano scene playing Vivaldi is, is one that comes to mind. This is a movie that is almost built around so much of them talking and challenging one another or getting to know one another or flirting. And I, I love every minute of those scenes. But but like you said, the the thing that brings it home from a from a romance standpoint, um, the scene that comes to mind is when they have they do have a, a squabble, not a not a second act conflict <laughs> from from a standard uh, rom com point of view, but they they have a disagreement. And then when um, Marianne, Marianne, whatever, I'm so bad at this uh, pronunciation, <laughs> uh, r- realizes that, you know, it comes home that it, there is the ticking clock on what's happening here. And then she runs to Eloise on, on the cliffs and hugs her from behind and basically is like, I'm sorry for, for wasting any more time. Uh, that, that, yeah, and the that, thing about that conflict, uh, sorry to interrupt real quick, but the thing about that conflict that makes it so much better than the tropey kind that we were both talking about is that you can actually see where both of them are coming from in that moment. And, and it makes sense. And then they also cooler heads prevail and they realize pretty quickly that the stakes are, are too high to really quibble over this. And there's not this grand reconciliation. It just happens very matter of factly and very quickly. To go back to another point you had, Adam, as I steered us off course, is uh, the camera does move around in this a lot as it as it follows characters, but I think there's also um, some really standout scenes when there's stillness. Oh yeah, that's that's what I was saying. This is this is her this is her still film. Like the camera does, there are notable instances of running generally. I think when the camera moves and notably moves. But this is the camera set in place in part because of the nature of the film. You've got painter and subject. And I, and I think it's balanced really well. Like that stood out to me today, even during the intro, where it's just like still shots of canvases um, from from students painting in, in Marianne's class. I mean, it, it, I think it's very well balanced in the stillness and in the, you know, the running shots, like you said. But just really... Uh, a striking filmmaking performance, we'll call it, in many different aspects. Andrew, do you think Jordan only comes on the podcast to hear you try to pronounce French names? Because I've just, I've realized last time Jordan was here, it was Jacques Demy, and you had a lot of difficulty there this time. Notice I've been avoiding <laughs> trying to say <laughs> the names. Jean Vieve. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. that's better than it was, I think, when we did the podcast. We <laughs> must have spent a while practicing. Okay, let's let's move it on a little bit. What I want to do is, just before we kind of go into full spoilers and we move towards the end and maybe talk about some of the bigger teams or ideas in the movie too that we can't quite get into without touching on that. There are quite a few standout scenes and I feel like there might be a few we feel quite strongly about. So 
to pass the floor over to either of you is there any scene in particular that you'd like to talk about or you feel is really important to talk about oh we have to talk about i think the bonfire scene uh, because we I, i don't think we've even um alluded to it at all thus far no i don't think we have it and i think it is probably one of the iconic scenes would you guys agree with that absolutely 100 percent. so uh it's a film that has no score there's only two uh spots or technically three i guess you could say where where music comes into play this is one of them um and it just sort of comes out of left field um they're at a, at a group of like a bunch of, I guess, uh, women servants and people from nearby who congregate and, and hang out. Um, it's a feast, right? I think it's even how they describe it. Right. And, um, and also a, another example of how <laughs> devoid this movie is of men, which is uh, another element that is so strong about it. Um, and so they're all together, and out of nowhere, they just start hearing this low droning hum that just slowly turns into this haunting, uh, but enrapturing choral performance. And it's it's like uh, Marianne and Eloise are, are seeing each other for the first time again, and like all the the barriers that they had are, are coming down in that moment almost. It's really just a magical scene, in my opinion. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that uh, when she catches on fire, literally the title of the movie, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and she just kind of gazes across the field, for lack of a better term, at Marianne. I mean, it's just, ah, it, it, it hits you in the feels every time, and it's just an absolutely gorgeous scene as well. That scene, for me, I, I think, as I adore the choral thing, I adore everything about it, but I think my favorite part of the scene is actually coming out of it. I think it's got one of the very best cuts of the year. Yeah. Where where um Eloise starts to fall and they grab hands and it cuts to them grabbing hands. It's like a two thousand one level match cut, right? Right. There. <laughs> it, it is a two thousand one level match cut, exactly. And it leads into the moment that is their first kiss. Um while the singing is still going on to to kind of score that scene just like those two scenes together incredible and particularly in the lead in to that so once you get past the match good and you move in um there i will say they're both i observed this today rather than the first time i watched it because little did i know what was coming they're both appropriately attired for our uh our current times 
uh, leading into that scene where they have yeah. like headscarves up over I'm their mouth and nose. Podcast. This was during right. the quarantine. Adam, right. I went to Walgreens today to buy wine and water, and my mask was not nearly as fashionable, but I did stay six feet away from everyone. But they their masks were much better than mine. I I won't I won't this yours may have been more effective. Um I, I'm not sure how effective their theirs were, but they looked good and uh it certainly it made the scene even all the more striking. I mean just all it's all the detail from the costume uh to obviously the the painting. I mean it's just something we haven't really talked about. The amount of actual painting in this movie, uh I, I wish I remembered. I heard Slinsiama describe just how many versions of the portrait the artist they had on set had to do for the movie. It was a lot, I believe. She had to basically paint all throughout the shoot, like every day while they were working on it, because to get the various different stages and then the different versions that we see in it, um, that's quite a lot. Yeah, you know, even they, one these would be are... a lot. And the fact that there was like so many of them is mind-boggling. I want and they're one. really good. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they're out there. Yeah, might, might, like, want to, like might want to start guy. saving, I think, if you want one, though. Yeah, it's or a you great can do what I do and uh, get a, a pop socket that's got um, unlicensed artwork on it. Uh, maybe, um, I wonder who, even who has them. See, if this was an A24 movie, A24, I don't know if either you saw it, they're auctioning off lots of oh, memorabilia yeah. from their movies right now. That's exactly the kind of thing that could be available for someone to get, but I don't know, maybe Neon, I think, a distributor in the US, right? I'm crazy uh, enough about this movie that I would drop uh, embarrassing amounts of money on merch for, for it, or actual things from the film. I don't think it needs to be embarrassed, but I think it would be a lot of money, <laughs> particularly particularly for the painting. Anyway, um, okay, that scene is certainly one that stands out. Any others? I guess the the a lot of the core ones we should probably leave for a moment until we get into right. Spoiler territory. I have one, but it's gonna have me pronounce Greek names, so I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't know how that's gonna go. Uh so the that, leave that leave that scene because okay. that scene is that scene is fully tied to one of the three endings. Then I'll leave that and I'll leave that and I'll try to pronounce one of those names I have difficulty with, but I will take the fall a, if needs be on that one for you. I have a a different scene that I can quickly reference just in place of that, and that's when they first go on their their walk. And uh, Heloise says to her, I've dreamed of that my whole life or whatever it is. And uh, Marianne replies, dying. And she says, running. I think that's uh, a great moment. I think it's in the trailer as well. And it like any, every time I see it, it's just like a goosebump scene for some reason. And I actually, good thing you brought that up because I wanted to say something about that specific quote um, and point out some of the flavor that's lost in the French to English translation. Um, so that line in, in French, um, the French words for dying and running are mourir and courier. They rhyme, so it's a lot more clever. Um, and so I just, I wonder what other little flourishes like that were, were missing throughout the film, not being a native speaker. Yeah, that's, that's a, I, I actually, I know about those words, but it's, a, there's a weird thing with, I find with, I, 
I don't speak French. I've already said this. I don't speak it fluently, but I speak a little bit of French. But I don't know. It's not the kind of thing that I'm. I I'm obviously the lack of fluency prevents when you're actually watching the movie. If I really want to engage, you've got to lock in on the subtitles and give them your attention. Where it's almost like you're not hearing it. And that's the kind of like the lyrical quality that that is working your script and working your movie on a completely different level. So that is that is definitely an interesting note. Um, that's a that's one line in particular we've talked about. I know Andrew, you wanted us to take a moment to talk about some of the quotes in the movie, which I noted to you. You were kind of unsure as to whether we do this, and I said, "Well, on my rewatch today, I." would regularly take notes for the podcast. My only notes on this occasion were three quotes, um, just kind of while watching through that I, that I jotted down. And it's not even that they were, I'm like, these are the three best quotes. If I, if I was in that space, I could have been writing tons of stuff down and really never stopped writing. Um, but I do think some of the things when you watch this movie, you just get completely struck by some of, some of the lines. The dialogue is truly exceptional. I feel like I have a contrarian opinion about one one of the lines, so I'm very curious to see is if ones that you noted. I swear to God, if it's one of these, <laughs> I'm, hit, I'm hitting you with a turkey leg at Thanksgiving if we're allowed to be within six feet. Continue. No, I want I want you to go first, Andrew, so that you know you can have your joyous moment. I have... And if it is one of them, Jordan can come and ruin it for you. Oh God, I have a feeling it's going to be this line. Uh... <laughs> So my, my favorite line for the movie is when Heloise is allowed to go out by herself and she comes back and is speaking to Marianne about it and she says, in solitude, I felt the liberty you spoke of, but I also felt your absence. I think that's the most romantic thing you could ever I say to a person. Okay, 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 good. That's, that's one of my three lines. And can I also note on that? Uh, it's it's one of my absolute favorite shots in the movie. Yeah, because you've you've got yes, exactly the rack. Rack focus. Um, <laughs> Sorry. It it is one of yeah. That's good <laughs> clarification. Um, we were on the same page. Everyone listening may not have been, and I'm glad you clarified. Um, it, it we we look at that scene with Mariana in side profile, and we just get one of the most perfect focus racks you'll ever see that really kind of warps us in on her perspective. It's it's just really, really interesting for trying to get into the psychology of the characters and getting a reaction. It's, and it's almost like breaking the fourth wall because she turns into the camera to let us see her reaction. One of my absolute favorite moments of the movie and just a really incredible line. That's one you've got approval on, Andrew. Let's see you if you can keep this going. And keep in mind, I do think this is like a perfect movie. So... <laughs> <laughs> it's only really going to be like one line. So I have an exchange between Heloise and Marianne. Not everything is fleeting. Some feelings are deep. The fact that it isn't close to me that I can understand, but I find it sad it isn't close to you. And then Marianne says, how do you know it isn't close to me? I didn't know you were an art critic. And then Heloise quips back, I didn't know you were a painter because she had just figured out the whole route. So I think that's one of the, the most bitingly funny lines in the movie. So Love that. Amazing. Okay. Want to return to that line in a minute and the team of that line. Go on, you're on a you're on a roll here. Maybe you're not going to touch on the one that yeah, will possible. make you and your brother fall out. <laughs> uh, I think I am. Uh, he chooses the memory of her. That's why he turns. He doesn't make the lover's choice, but the poet's. That's close, but no, no, that wasn't the one I chose. So, and 
Am I? Um, we'll get it again. I'm sorry to keep doing this, but this is for people who haven't seen because we'll be putting a spoiler warning up in a second. We will return to that one because on my watch today, I think that's one of two lines of the movie that are maybe most important. I hope I haven't spoiled it already. I, I get too excited when I talk about this movie. <laughs> I don't think you have. Anything else, Andrew? No, I mean, I'm sure I could if if I had. I'd limit, you could keep going. You don't need to. I limited myself to three today, just for the sake of time. I have one. I have one. Maybe I've got it. <laughs> Let's find it's, out. It's it's tied to the one you just described. It's tied to the idea of memory, which I want to touch on in a second. Um, but this comes when uh, Marianne is jotting kind of a portrait of Eloise for herself, and she says, "After a while, you'll see her when you think of me." Like that one too. Oh well, so, we're doing well. Okay, so it's all over to you. What's what's the issue? I'm I'm curious. So there's none that you would uh, could guess that it might be. Is this a spoiler, by the way? Before because oh uh, no, definitely not. Okay, no guesses. I, I have no idea. Okay, no, me neither. Um, so it's one that's always stood out to me every time, and I I don't hate it, but it just feels awkward to me. Um, as when uh, it's the line, do all lovers feel as though they're inventing something? And I, I feel like that's one, uh, every time I hear it, it's one that I see, I can see people latching onto, but just verges on cheesy almost for me. And it's one that I also wonder if maybe the French translation might, if I, if I found that, might be able to massage that a little bit for me. Might be a little bit more nuanced. Yeah, I, I get, I totally get what you're saying and translation aside, I mean, it could be something that's more or less cheesy in French. I don't know. But it also makes sense to me coming from her character considering she was at a convent and is, you know, lacking experience in that department. So she's overcome with emotion and I mean, it, it makes sense to me for her character, but I get what you're saying. I, I think it's a, it is a clunky, it's a clunky line. It's one that definitely needs the visual context that goes with it. And I think in that, in the flow of that scene, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me. I, I actually, I think it's fine. It works quite well. It wouldn't be one of my favorite lines of the movie. None of us came forward with that one. But I, I I see your point, but I think in the in the context of that scene, I think it works. You both make very great points, um, and I think I will view it through that new lens next time I see it. Now, but it also, I mean, for, for you, what you're doing here is you're taking something you you love and you're examining it with a fine tooth comb because that's what you do when you see something so many times. So I mean, I get where you're coming from, but for me and Adam, I, I it sounds like it does work. And uh, we'll see how I'm feeling on Rewatch 7. <laughs> okay, if you haven't seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire, what are you doing? Um, now would be the time to stop listening because we're going to go into spoilers. If you haven't seen it, I mean, it's pretty readily available right now. It's on Hulu in the US, right? Uh, yes, it is. And I think it might also be on Mubi, the service, if you're familiar. I was going to say, it's, it's certainly on Mubi in the UK and Ireland right now. So... If is, that's is also the case in the US. Outside the US? Um, I wouldn't say popular is a term that probably goes hand in hand with movie. Popular people yeah. like us, Jordan. Yeah. But 
a wider kind of audience, general public, not so much. Different, you get different content. I know that much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's certainly it's available on Movie UK and Ireland. It's also, I think, available for purchase on Kurtz and Home Cinema. Uh, Kurtzen distributed it in this part of the world. So, if you haven't seen it, that's where you can find it. You can pre-order going... the Criterion Blu-ray or DVD, which is coming out in June, at least, in, in uh, my neck of the woods. Very exciting. Very, very exciting. Oh, yeah. end of this um i don't want to get quite to the ending just yet there's a couple of things i want to talk about the they're tied to two quotes that andrew helpfully brought up just before it so the two things that really jumped out to me on my my viewing ahead of recording today um so my fourth viewing in my case when i was you know i had all of the different kind of story beats were down the arc of of their uh, romance and i guess all of the the details of that and how it's portrayed. When I was familiar with all of that, I was allowed to just kind of sit back and, I guess, not quite let the movie wash over me in the same way. I wasn't as overwhelmed by the emotional side of it because I I already knew and appreciated. So when I, I got to kind of dive in, I guess there were some elements that maybe were escaping me before and maybe this wasn't the case for either of you, but they were certainly making me think a lot more about it on this occasion. I think foremost of those is memory and the idea of memory and specifically how this movie is framed. I, I mentioned earlier that Silenciama has talked about equality and uh, we ourselves have kind of touched on the pretty even split throughout this movie. I do think there is one exception to that though and one notable exception that I guess today has made me think, is there something to this story that I should be viewing in a different way than what I have been? If that's not at all obvious what I might be talking about to either of you, I'll go in, I'll I'll tell you straight away. I won't kind of, we won't turn this into a game, but do either of you have any idea what I might be talking about? I'm not insightful anymore. Uh, these, these times, being cooped inside all day, I'm not getting enough vitamin D. I, I don't know what's going on. My only guess would be Sophie's particular storyline. No, uh, I actually, I feel like that's something we're not really going to talk about in any great detail, but I like that. And I like her as a character and I'm kind of amazed by how much that works because, yeah, you know, it feels like it in, theory, yeah. in theory, she should just be in the way. And in fact, it's the complete opposite. So no, that's not, I, I don't really have a whole lot to say. We probably won't really unpack Sophie's character and even that element of it. Uh, poor Sophie, she deserves it. Yeah, but it's a really, really strong character, like a really likable character and a character who, I guess, works in terms of how she interacts with the two leads too. No, what, what I'm talking about specifically is 
I guess the opening scene of the movie and then the framing of the movie overall. So the movie opens with a scene that I guess um, is present day where Marianne is teaching a class of young aspiring painters and in the back of the room someone has taken out this painting of hers which happens to be Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, it is a recreation of the scene at the at the feast at the campfire that we've already touched on. And I think, you know, the first three times I saw this movie, I just, sure, okay, we're into the movie, and then it's what it is. I'm kind of, I'm lost in the story then. And because we're not kind of jumping back and forth in time, it never really, it never really did anything. It never really spoke to me. And on this occasion, I started to think about that a whole lot more and to think about the idea of memory. And to think about this really as being framed through Marianne's perspective. And where this got to me was the one element that I just, I couldn't, I guess I couldn't pin down what exactly I was to take from it early on. And it's key to one of the three endings. And it's also key to the Greek names that Andrew was afraid of pronouncing. The wedding dress and these visions of Eloise in the wedding dress. The fact that they are her wedding dress at the end of the movie, Marianne sees her in that dress for the first time. Mm -hmm. And the fact that when the visions first occur in the storylines as presented to us is long before she knows that's what the wedding dress looks like specifically. That made me think about particularly with the moments those visions come about almost the instances where in the if not the retelling of the story but the the remembering of the story where things got too difficult for Marianne and that was the idea of the reality kind of encroaching on I guess the the fantasy of her memory the romance of her memory and maybe I'm just reading way too much into that, but it was then with the quotes, like like the two that we mentioned just before we moved into this. So the, the one that you mentioned, Andrew, was in reference to the three characters, Sophie, Marianne, and Eloise. They're sitting around and they're reading... Oh, I, I don't know. I'm not good with classics, so I don't know exactly what texts or what kind of part of some sort of classical story they're reading. But it's the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. That's how I was going to pronounce you... both these. That's that's good. Good job. Really? What's it? That was my yeah. Eurydice was where I was really. I was going to say Eurydice. I, always, I but see I Eurydice, and I always want to do Eurydice. <laughs> yeah, Sam which is like it's it's yeah it's the Inglorious Bastards Brad Pitt version of it, uh, but Eurydice. So. It, in reflecting upon this story, which, if I have it correctly, um, Orpheus makes a deal with Hades that to see Eurydice again, he must go up from the underworld, go back to the light, and not look behind him at where Eurydice will be until he has reached, you know, ground, until he's out in the light again. And if he does turn around and look at her, he'll never see her again. And... So the story is that he turns around and looks at her just before emerging into the daylight. So 
the characters have this discussion about you know why does he do that does he just does he just love her so much that he can't help but look and the line that ultimately comes out is he chooses the memory of her he doesn't make the lover's choice but the poet's choice and in thinking about the kind of the wider shape of the movie and marianne's um marianne's story and also marianne's role and her profession and what her function is in the film i mean she is she is the artist she is the closest we get to the poet um we get this scene laid on where she does she turns and she looks at eloise in the wedding dress and then of course the other one that i mentioned was after a while you'll see her when you think of me which is again kind of tying into this this notion of memory and what they're seeing and what they're remembering have have i just seen this too many times that i'm now kind of getting lost in this i mean the one thing i'd say for me is the wedding dress and the visions of the wedding dress were the things that i guessed there was something i was looking for uh, there was something i felt like i'm not quite grasping maybe either of you have a reading on that that will click into place more neatly for me but the idea of memory and how it plays into this and the possibility that maybe we're getting a retelling of this story that's coming true marianne's perspective was something that kind of stood out to me on this watch of it i see where you're coming from with that i won't speak long because i know jordan can come from a much better perspective with that but i i agree that the the wedding dress like uh visions for lack of a better term it, it is almost like a realization interrupting a fantasy or a nightmare interrupting a dream that's kind of the vibe that you get and it, that's an interesting point where you mentioned that she had in the the narrative that we're telling she had not yet seen her in that wedding dress so we are getting that from her recollection and it's like an interruption in that fantasy so that's a, a good point that someone that's seen it two times definitely uh couldn't have uh connected i i don't know that i have necessarily a, a solution that will feel right for everybody but um i have a, a simple reading of it that I enjoy, um, and so I just I feel it almost makes or adds an element of a ghost story to this, um, and that she's being uh, Marianne is being haunted by the the very last image that she sees of Eloise before uh, she gets married, um, and so that's how I've been doing it as just a literal haunting going on. Yeah, which I guess that that would still play into the idea of we're getting this story as if she's telling it to someone, as if she's recalling it, which I guess I guess she is. We get the I mean how we transition into the story from the opening scene is like she looks at the painting and then we get a slow gradual zoom into the painting as if we're basically transporting into that world. So I guess it is kind of maybe uh, like it's all some sort of reminiscence, like and yeah, I think it's safe it, to say that it's from Marion's perspective, or that's heavily suggested. Yeah, which I uh, is interesting. It would bring up other questions, and I, I think the one thing that that then kind of does great against a little is the equality in their perspective. I, I mean, that's kind of it those two things don't necessarily mesh then if we are getting it from her side, but look, either way, I think like the film is great. The film doesn't suffer for it. And I think it's the opposite. It's the fact that there are these moments, one that the film is completely coherent. You know, it's not like I'm searching for explanation. I don't think anyone 
needs to with this movie um but it, it is that on repeat viewing there are other layers that could be found there what, one other thing that i just much more briefly to touch on there is a shot in this movie which i think is one of the the more interesting shots in this movie and it's it's lifted directly from another movie about two women on a remote island I don't know if either of you have seen the movie that it's lifted from or if that speaks to you initially. Any ideas? I uh, don't know. Uh, it's, an, it's an Ingmar Bergman movie. Oh, Persona? Correct. Oh, no. I, I sort of blocked that out of my, out of my mind. If you, guys, oh. if you guys ever want to talk Bergman, I'll, I'll come back. <laughs> I, I struggle with Bergman. I'll, I'll be honest. Bergman is a filmmaker that... I don't know. Maybe I'm just not at the right stage of my life yet for Bergman to speak to me. There's some Bergman movies I like quite a lot. Persona is actually one of them, and there are others that I just I really struggle with. But regardless of that, there is there is a scene in this movie which is essentially down by the beach where um we get Marianne inside profile and her face is perfectly masking Eloise. Right. And Eloise just kind of as she turns, we see it, and it's this idea of the two, I guess, becoming one. And, I mean, this is the key motif of the movie, as we get it later on with the with the great scene with the mirror, where Marianne starts to do the portrait, the self-portrait for Eloise to keep, um, where you're getting this idea of, you know, seeing yourself in someone else. And that comes from the setup of the movie with the painter and uh the subject you know where they're both studying each other and they both have these things they can say about you know you do this and you do that well while you're feeling this way that to me is something that i think it's it's not something that's unique in terms of a, a movie about love would try to do but i think it's rarely in terms of the setup of the movie in terms of its execution in terms of all of the layers both in in dialogue and just in detail throughout in the staging of the scenes I don't think it's ever really captured as well this idea of these two strangers at the start of the movie actually coming together and by the end being something that's you know they're completely interconnected and yet they're being broken apart all the same. Yeah, there's a there's a list on Letterboxd that I've seen a lot where it's a large collection of movies and I think the title is something along the lines of you're a different person once the credits start rolling or something like that or when the movie's over you're a different person and i I feel like this is one of those um for me where as as soon as i saw it like i remember where i was i remembered like immediately afterwards Mm -hmm. texting andrew telling him this is the real deal like people aren't just hyping it up um and so that's how that's how i remember it see it six months later it's all fine (laughs) (laughs) the the thing is i definitely sent andrew something similar i saw this really early i think you saw it really early because i remember andrew saying if if you hadn't already seen it when i had you you saw very soon after and being like yeah jordan also thinks that movie is incredible i must get to see it but look all's well that ends well we're eventually having a conversation about it Okay, the three endings. Yes, they're um, neither... so one we've one we've touched on. One is the turnaround, the turnaround, and the wedding dress. Yes, and we're all are all three of us okay with there be 
being three endings. Did anyone think that was the wrong decision or there were too many? So, if so, why do you like being wrong? So normally, <laughs> normally I'm the type of person that would say, you know, just end it at that initial gut punch and like give me that. Did they see each other again? What happened? I don't care. But in this, you've got three gut punches. Ex- exactly. They. This is like, listen. I'm watching a lot of Taiwanese and Korean baseball lately. This is a fucking grand slam, is what this is. I thought that was going to be movies. I thought you'd like really got into Edward Yang, and I was getting excited. That could be part but of it. No. We'll see. <laughs> Yeah, the the tree endings are perfect. Okay, so one is the wedding dress, the other is in the gallery seeing the the page that she has a uh, she has drawn the portrait of herself in Eloise's book being kind of I mean, legit, we don't need to actually work through the logic of that seed and the portrait and just some be like, "Oh, what page are you on there?" and we'll put that in. But just an incredible, incredible moment. That to me is the second ending. Are we all in agreement with that? Oh yeah, absolutely. And then we get what's the actual ending, which is Vivaldi in the theater. For how long exactly? I'm not sure. What is it like a full like two minutes or something? Maybe. I I feel like it's probably shorter than it feels. Yeah. It's the fact that the final shot is just locked in on Eloise, and that is. I don't know. It's certainly over a minute long without a cut. We're we're just locked in her face and we're watching her emotions in real time. There's... Perfect encapsulation of like what this movie is of like reading someone's face and 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 just seeing everything from their expression and you just see it all in that one shot. There's there's a scene in the Netflix series Master None created by Aziz Ansari and Alan Yang where. Aziz Ansari's character Dev drops off an unavailable woman who's his friend that he's uh, yes I know where you're going. He, he's just been to like a party with and she's like his his dream girl they have so much chemistry he's basically in love with her but she's unavailable and we get this limo ride of him just emotionally reacting to leaving her and knowing he can never be with her kind of a situation with a, a song playing over it which I can't remember what the song is but that's not important and this is like that turned up to a million like it's it's up there with my favorite endings of, of any movie i've ever seen before sunset i referenced earlier is another favorite ending of mine i love the ending of la la land countless others but it's after you've already been punched in the gut twice it, it really hits you a third time now jordan s- successfully convinced uh my mom to watch this movie uh and and her uh, before before you saw it or after 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 because I because okay. I helped reinforce like you guys need to see this they still haven't seen Parasite but for whatever we'll we'll get them on that but she she says I always want love to win out she's but she acknowledges like that is an absolutely spectacular movie and the ending affected her that much that she was so upset by just like the emotion of it all it's 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 amazing. Yeah, I think I, I recommended it. I can't stop recommending it to people. Um, Nor should you. Yeah, and everyone that I've suggested it to so far, I think I didn't recommend it to my dad. He was sort of forced to watch it because our mom was watching it. Uh, so I don't know if he has an opinion on it, but everyone else that I've actually recommended it to has given it glowing praise, and it just it brings me so much joy to know that I've uh, been able to spread it spread the word i do think there one of the things that the 
the three endings does but particularly that final the final ending and the final shot and us lingering on um Adelhanel's face for so long the way that shot holds does something that I really love in a movie and obviously not every movie can do this but if a film is good enough and it's it's done enough up until that point where it's earned it I think there is nothing better than a final shot where it's holding and it's holding in a way where you don't want it to end but you also know it's the end and you're somewhat overwhelmed by what you've seen and you're you're getting to kind of take everything in and putting everything together at that moment and i i think that in this case is kind of particularly special because that's not unlike what we're seeing eloise go through in fact it's exactly what she's going through she's reliving everything that we've seen in the movie essentially um she's thinking back to everything that we've seen which you know everything that maybe we have seen through Marianne's perspective, yeah. Um, but all the same, she is she is living through that on her own, and maybe even the fact that we end with her and we end with her kind of sharing in that sense does also bring a level of equality to the. Okay, well, if Marianne is somewhat telling this story, that's almost like the verification of it. But I I do when a movie does enough, um, and particularly when it's kind of it packs a strong enough emotional punch. I, I do like a final shot that will will hold and will kind of let you relive that and will let you kind of feel it the same way the character is feeling it. And it, it is a movie that when I left the theater, just completely exhilarated. I, I like, I remember specifically the feeling of walking out into the street and being like, you know, <laughs> my eyes like wide open as if like, my god like that's something i'm going to remember seeing for a very very long time so there is there's something so uncommon about that ending um both in terms of how it's constructed but also in terms of how effective it is that i think is really really spectacular have we got anything else are we are we nearly at the point of kind of final thoughts actually i do just i mean all i can say is just more praise for it but what you just mentioned about how we open the film with Marianne and the implication that her seeing the, the painting might be uh, what sort of starts the entire film in motion with her remembering all these events and to end it with the implication of uh, Eloise hearing this orchestra likely for the first time and is now experiencing the exact same thing from her perspective, I think is just, so well done it's incredible to me i don't have any additional like granular thoughts about this other than don't be like me and ignore heatings to see this movie i mean i will at some point during this quarantine watch more celine siama movies i think adele hanel is an absolute uh superstar and actress the same goes for noemi marchant Merlon. Merlon. Okay, I, I pulled. No, it wasn't close because you changed the ladder. I pulled down the Wikipedia page. Uh, I was looking at NFL draft stuff on Twitter. I'm so sorry, but uh, like it's it's an absolutely amazing movie, and I've seen it twice within the last, I guess, three weeks. Now time has no meaning, and it knocked me 
out both times. It's it's absolutely brilliant. Don't be an Andrew in any walk of life, but it's, it's specifically this. Yeah, I hope we're also, you, I mean, you made reference again to like subtitles early on. I hope we're getting to the point where we're breaking that down for good. Where you just won't even, you won't even notice. You'll start a movie and it's just a movie. You're not even going to be like, oh, there's subtitles for this one. For me, yeah, for, pe- for people who are averse to them, what you all you have to do is if there's something that you watch all the time, like a, a comfort show like The Office, start watch, watching with the subtitles on. Not only will you catch tons of stuff that you haven't caught before, you'll get used to subtitles, and then maybe you'll get opened up to an entire new world of films. There's my rant. I even I'd go simpler. I'd just say just get over it. You know, <laughs> it's just 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 like just do it. Just actually take the movie for what it is and like it's it's still primarily visual, you know. So much of what you're getting is still there and you're actually depriving yourself of some of the the most amazing kind of work ever committed to film if you're just kind of shying away from subtitles. It's I, I've long gone past the point of, of recognizing it. It's just, they're just movies. And when I start a movie, I start a movie. And, you know, whatever is there, whatever's a part of that package is is what I've signed up for. And it's not like it takes any extra top beyond that. So my my main goal with this podcast now, any other goals I've had are gone. It's just to break Andrew to the point where he no longer even registers whether subtitles in a movie. Oh, I'm... Well past that point. I, I hate dubs now, if we can get me past that. Uh, oh, I mean, if anyone has ever watched dubs over subtitles, seek help. That's all I'll say. Seek help. For That's... what type of media are we referring to? So movies, like my friend has been trying to get me to watch a movie on Netflix that's only dubbed. And I, like I started it, and I'm just like, no, I can't fucking do this. I would never say that about a subtitle movie, but dubs, it, I mean, it doesn't work for me. Like, let's, well, what, let's what movie about. is it? It's called Platform. Or oh, no. It's not subtitled? Is, is it not? Maybe he only watched it. Has, it, has to be, it has to be subtitled. Then I yeah, I'd, be, I'd be very surprised if, if it was. There's were. no filmmaker who makes the decision that my, my work will only <laughs> be dubbed. Um, I mean, the best example of dubbing versus subtitles, I think the one that is, we're really, we're getting sidetracked at the end of this, but is Studio Ghibli films, so of... Hayao Miyazaki's masterworks in particular, those animated films where they would get high-profile casts to dub them, like Christian Bale and people would come in to dub the English-speaking dubs. But even then, I mean, just watch the original. Like, You don't need a a version of the movie that's tailored perfectly for you. Someone made the movie, and the their own language and their own culture is a part of it. Even if you can't understand it, hearing it is important. I mean, you picked out a detail in this movie that I wasn't aware of, or certainly hadn't occurred to me, Jordan, that is a, like a great example of this. You're, you're losing something entirely. You have no chance of picking up on some of the intricacies of the movie. If you're switching it to a different language and altogether. So how dare you even bring dubs into this, Andrew? Uh, <laughs> well, I, but... I said, I didn't like them. That's okay. Uh, that's not what anyone will remember. Everyone will just remember you brought up dubs. Okay, I think that's it. Is it? Any? We just no final thoughts. We all completely adore this movie, and I don't think it's news for the three of us to be saying it's a masterpiece because uh, a lot of more qualified people than us have already gone ahead and said that. The fact, as you alluded to, Jordan, that it's going to be in the Criterion Collection in like the span of 
two months, three months from when it was released, uh, even on demand. Like, that's not something that happens very often. That certainly speaks to the movie in its own right. And one of the things about that and the fact that it's like one of the best reviewed movies of last year and this year is it makes me sort of rethink the idea of like when you're compiling your own list of like these are my favorite movies of all time and occasionally feeling a little guilt if you like include something that's maybe more recent even as recent as a couple of months ago um and i feel like that people often feel like they have to put something like oh if i if i don't have vertigo on here then people are going to take me seriously but this is one where i feel like i could you can make a case where this is an all-time favorite for me and i'm sure of it like you don't know what you've done (laughs) yeah you should also have vertigo on there but that's for another day i i agree with that sentiment that's the, the fear of and the idea of you have to you know you need distance to to know sometimes i think there are cases where that's not true and even if you do need distance it turns out to be not all that long like i think a a prime example of that is david fincher's zodiac which is now like roundly hailed by filmmakers as this is this is a masterpiece this is an all-time movie and yet not a massive hit critically acclaimed didn't do that well in terms of awards at the time but it's what are we 12 years later i think um maybe a little bit more 13 years later and that movie is kind of routinely seen as a masterpiece sometimes you know when you see something but you know this is something we're going to talk about for a long long time and that's certainly the case with this movie i smell another zodiac pod in our future (laughs) yeah it's possible all right that does it for this episode first of all thanks to you for coming back jordan we couldn't have we couldn't have, in uh, good faith, done a podcast on Portrait of a Lady on Fire without having you back on. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. I mean, I will honestly take any opportunity I can to, to spread the gospel of Celine Siama. At some point, we will have a guest that's not named Jordan, but at this point, <laughs> that's, that's not in the immediate You've, future. We've already, we've had one. You forgot about Ty. Oh, I, forgot, uh, I did forgot about Ty. Sorry, Ty. Love you, Ty. But if there are any other Jordans out there who want to appear, you know, reach out. It's it's certainly it's gone well so far. Next week we are going to do an episode that is kind of, I guess, especially designed for the times we're living in. This occurred when a listener I was speaking today mentioned, oh, they're trying to find movies we've talked about so far that are available on streaming. So it seems like we should probably do an episode that gives a whole bunch of picks that people can stream easily across a variety of different platforms. So we'll do exactly that for next week. We'll have a whole variety of picks from various platforms. Maybe Andrew will pick his favorite dubs on Netflix. Is that on the agenda, Andrew? No, Adam, but I have uh, started loosely coming up with a selection I've called Date Night, which is rom-coms that aren't horrible. So, Well, I might leave that section to you that seems more like your expertise generally but i'm i'm excited to hear it we'll have all sorts of recommendations for all of you next week it'll be a little bit different than any episode we've done so far but it should be a fun one and we'll hopefully give you plenty to watch glenn powell oh. will make an appearance oh wow don't give don't give the game away like that until the next time before andrew tips his hat anymore thanks to all of you for listening
make sure you subscribe to us on whatever your podcast platform of choice is you can find us basically everywhere and we're also on Twitter at Capshot Cell and on Facebook too until next week thanks again for listening stay safe everyone. thanks